Well, good morning. I want to start this morning with a question. What's the one thing that if it were removed, the church could not live without? Let's say this church specifically. What's the one thing that if we were to remove from this church, we would feel it? What's the one thing we could not do without? The pews? The Bibles? The gospel? Blake? All good answers. But I would suggest to you, the one thing that this church could not live without is love. We could remove a lot of things, but if you take love out of this church, it's going to fail. In fact, it's not a scriptural church if you do so. Back in medieval times, there were some Franciscan monks that decided that they wanted to help poor people and to combat predatory loans. And so they decided to lend money to folks that were poor, that were having struggles financially. They didn't charge any interest on these loans. The only caveat was that they were to put up something for collateral that showed that they were serious about paying the debt off at some point whenever they were able. And so this, this type of lending became very popular and very effective. So much so that it became known as what we call pawn shops. And so people would walk into these pawn shops and they would be greeted by a Franciscan friar who would show them the love of Jesus, who would simply lend them some money to get back on their feet or to help them financially, and that was it. No strings attached except that you put something up for collateral that, that says, at some point in time, I'll pay it back. The whole idea was to help people in need and to show them the love of Christ. Now, today, pawn shops still exist. And I would say, I think I'm right in saying that almost all of them, if not all of them, exist for a very different purpose, right? What was begun as a way of combating predatory lending has become a means of predatory lending. And what's the difference? Well, it all comes down to love, doesn't it? And Scripture has a lot to say about love. Love is a difference maker. And of all the things that the church, that Christians could be known for, love should be paramount. That should be at the top of the list. And I can say that with all confidence because Scripture says that. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, Jesus said, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In this same discourse with his disciples, Jesus goes further by stating, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Five verses later, Jesus gets back to this topic. He's driving at this topic of love and he says, This I command you, that you love one another. That's Jesus. Paul had a lot to say about love. Paul hit the, hit the nail on the head many times when it comes to love, when he said, let love be without hypocrisy. Let all that you do be done in love, walk in love. Of course, it was Paul who also wrote that, uh, that love chapter that we read, 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 13. John had much to say about love in, in, uh, in third John or 1 John chapters 3 and 4. We know Peter, the Hebrew writer, 
And again, Paul had much to say about this topic of love. The point is that the topic of love is not infrequent and it's not a minor thing as presented in Scripture. In fact, the entirety of the Bible is drenched with love because the Bible is a love story. Now, the love that is talked about in Scripture is diametrically opposed to what our culture talks about when it defines love. In our culture, love is seen as an emotion, as feeling, as sentimentality. What you hear Taylor Swift or others on the radio sing about is not the type of love that Paul or Peter or John and others were talking about in Scripture. Love today is often defined like a a virus, something that you catch whether you want to or not. It's something that you fall in and out of. That's not the love of Scripture. No, the love of Scripture is loving at the highest level. It is an action. It is something that you do. It is who you are. It is a character trait. Now, our text for this morning is Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. But before we get there, we need to set up what Paul is talking about and what we're going to talk about this morning by going all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 4. Now, don't worry, we're not going to fill in the gap between Genesis chapter 4 and Romans chapter 13 by covering every passage in between. I just want to talk about Genesis 4 to set up what we're going to talk about in Romans 13, starting in verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the first fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said to him, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Cain asked a timeless question. Am I my brother's keeper? And folks, the rest of the Bible answers that question. Paul approaches it, even in other places besides Romans 13, Over and over again, we see the answer to this question when we read through the New Testament. Bear one another's burdens. Stimulate one another to love and good needs. Love one another. Encourage one another. Comfort one another. Confess to one another. Accept one another. Be devoted to one another. Forgive one another. You get the idea. Throughout the pages of Scripture, this query is answered. Am I my brother's keeper? Jesus said, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want to treat them, or the same way they treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. 1 John 4, 20-21 states, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. It was Peter who said, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. The second greatest commandment as given by our Lord is to love your neighbor as yourself. The Genesis account is important for many reasons. 
And one of the reasons is that it gives us a first glimpse at who God really is. From the very point of creation, God shows us that he is a lot of things, but among those things, he is communal. Let us make man in our image. He's conferring with the Godhead, the other personalities of the Godhead, right? God always chose a people. God wanted to be in community, still wants to be in community with his people. God created us for that. That's why he established the church. It's why Jesus came to die. Yes, he died for the sins of the world, but he died for a relationship. He died to restore that fellowship that was lost in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3. We are our brother's keeper. What is the chief identifier that testifies to our discipleship? Well, Jesus says it should be love. They will know that you are my disciples by the love that you show. And this love that we should have for one another constitutes much more than mere emotion. This is a debt. And it's a perpetual debt. You will never pay it off. You will always owe it. But it's not burdensome. That brings us to Paul's words in Romans chapter 13. Look at verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You know, story is told that a Roman nobleman died, and when he died, it was discovered that he had an astronomical debt that he owed that he had concealed his entire life. The debt was so astronomical, he never would have been able to pay it off. And as the story goes, Caesar Augustus sent one of his agents to the auction for this man's estate, and he said, bid on that man's pillow. I want that man's pillow. And the agent, somewhat confused, said, why would you want his pillow? And he said, anybody who can sleep owing that amount of debt, that's got to be a great pillow. (laughs) And you know, we know something about owing something, don't we? I mean, most, if not all of us here, owe something as far as personal debts, either a house loan or a car loan. We know all about taking out a loan. In fact, it's been said that society can be broken up into three categories. You have the haves, the have-nots, and they have not paid for what they have. And that's kind of where most of us find ourselves in one of those three categories. But how great is it when you've paid on that house for 30 years and you make that final payment, or you pay on that car for four or five years and you write that final check, the burden is gone, That burden that followed you the whole time until you paid off that debt, right? And then finally you get to erase it from the books. Paul talks about a debt that we all owe. That debt shouldn't be burdensome. In fact, it should be a debt that we pay willingly, but we will never pay it off. And if we ever reach the point where we think we've paid it off, we're wrong, and we need to go back to remembering what we owe. Paul had just finished talking about what we owe the government. We talk about private debts versus 
public debts. That's really what Paul is getting at here. Personal debts versus public debts. And if you go back to Romans chapter 13 verse 1, you see what sets up all of this that we're talking about this morning. Like we've talked about all year, we want to take bigger chunks of scripture. We want to avoid proof texting or pulling things out of context. So let's get the bigger context here. If you go back to verse 1, it says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now we could spend the rest of our time just camping out here, but our purpose is not to discuss our submission to governmental authority, but rather to set up what is being spoken of in verses 8 through 10. Now, in order to understand Romans 13, you have to go back to Romans 12. You can go back to Romans 12 sometime and read verses 9 through about 21, and that sets up everything that we have discussed so far. But what you see in Romans chapter 12 is a theme that Christians are to be a people of peace. That's the theme in Romans chapter 12. We are to live in peace. We are not to return evil for evil to anyone. We are not to take vengeance into our own hands because that is God's job. Over and over again, you see that theme in Romans chapter 12, that Christians are to be a people of peace. Now you slide on over to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and what you see is that in spite of Rome's wickedness, Paul states that we are to be a people of peace, that the Roman Christians were to be a people of peace, that they were to submit to the Roman authorities. We often look at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and we say, well, the basic theme is we are to obey the laws of the land. But there's more to it than that. Yes, that's part of it. But really, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7 is talking about submission to the governing authorities. And you say, well, isn't that the same thing? Isn't obedience and submission the same thing? Well, yeah, but not exactly. What Paul is talking about is that the Roman Christians were to put themselves in subjection to Roman authorities. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise because you go all the way back to the Old Testament and you see whether we're talking about Assyria or Babylon or Egypt, I mean, there was always a subjection that God's people were placed under, even though it was an unruly body, even though it was a nation that was corrupt or whatever. God used these evil nations for his divine purpose. Understand that Romans 13 is not God signing off on the emperor's rule. This is not God sanctioning what the Caesar was doing. What Romans 13 is really talking about is you are to be in submission to the governing authorities so long as they don't violate the will of God. I mean, if the governing authorities ask you to violate God's will in order to be submissive to them, there you have a problem, right? And you always default to God's rule when it comes to that. 
Otherwise, though, you submit to the governing authorities. Why? Because this isn't your home anyway. You don't belong here. This is not your home. So pay your taxes like a good little citizen. Do what you're supposed to do and move forward. Be a people of peace because you can affect the lives of others that way. You are a Christian, which means that your life is about something bigger. Don't get caught up in the travails of this world, especially all the things that go along with the government. And just remember that you are a child of God. This world is not your home. You're just passing through. So that's really the context here. It's a context that bothers some people, I understand, but the people were to submit to the governing authorities. They were to pay their taxes. They were to do what they were supposed to do because their residence was in heaven. From there, Paul speaks about a debt that is to be paid every day and yet at the same time must continue to be paid every single day. And the key word here is owe. You see a transition from verses 7 to verse 8. And the transition is Paul shifting from addressing public debts to addressing private debts. And while Christians must always be responsible for paying off their debts, Paul says, yeah, here's one you can't pay off. Here's one that's going to stick with you for a lifetime. It's not burdensome. It's not one that uh, you should feel, uh, you know, burdened by or complain or be irritated by. In fact, it should be one that you pay off willingly. But why? Why do we owe this? Why do we have this spiritual IOU as a Christian? Well, there's a few reasons. First of all is because it fulfills the law. And you might say, well, what law? Well, obviously he had the law of Moses in mind, didn't he? Because he mentions four commandments here. And the idea is that these Jewish Christians we're constantly trying to bind portions of the law on the Gentiles. And Paul is saying, you don't live under the law anymore. He's not saying that the law has been abolished, but rather it's been fulfilled. If you go all the way back to the Ten Commandments, Paul's basically saying, if you love your brother, you won't kill him. If you love your brother, you won't steal from him. If you love your brother, you won't bear false witness. It's all about love. Love fulfills the law. You see, Jews had turned the law into something rote and mechanical, and Jesus came to write it on their hearts. He came to say there's more to it than just following the letter of it, crossing every T and dotting every I. God sent His Son, His only begotten Son, not just to enforce the rules, but to write it on their hearts, to say that the motivation behind all of this is love. There is a return to Eden in mind here. This is a love story. And yes, there are rules that we must obey, but they are not in place to merely regulate one's behavior. Rules are there to lovingly protect us and to guide us because the one who handed them down has nothing but our best interest in mind. Now, this may not resonate much with us since we're not Jewish Christians. However, we have two commands, don't we? We have two great commandments that we are to live by. And what are they? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. These are our two great commandments. The two pillars of our faith. I mean, really, a summation of Christianity. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love is based on the priceless value that God places on mankind. If you ever worry about the value of your soul, just look at the cross. 
That will show you the priceless value that God sees in you. You were worth dying for. And it is our responsibility to reciprocate that love back to other people and, of course, back to God. We have to understand that Paul is not suggesting that our love is just limited to Christians. He had other people in mind as well because Paul was all about the gospel. Christians should be all about the gospel as well. And so every time we get up in the morning, every time our feet hit the floor, we should be thinking to ourselves, we have an opportunity today. We have an opportunity to show Jesus to others. As we walk down the street, we think to ourselves, I am an ambassador for Christ. Whether we're in the office or the classroom or in the factory, we're thinking to ourselves, this is a perpetual debt. I owe this because God, God saved my soul by sending his only begotten son. I show the son to others so that their lives might be affected. True love, the kind that sent Jesus to this earth and to a cross, is the kind of love that never, ever goes away. You're always paying on it. And you're doing so without burden. You're doing so in order to make an impact. You never reach a point. Now, I understand in our culture, we reach a point where we give up on love. We love you to a point, and then we say that's enough. Not so with biblical love. There's never a point in our, in our, our loving relationship with God or in our re- loving relationship with others that we reach a point and we say, I'm done. I've loved them enough. I've done everything I can. I've loved them to a point, and this is my, this is my limit. No, there is no limit. There are no boundaries. This love continues to be perpetuated. We owe love also because we all come from the same spiritual womb. We all share the same spiritual DNA, don't we? One of the most notable characteristics about the church that is rather amazing and really unfathomable is the fact that we gather here on Sundays with people that we probably wouldn't hang out with on Saturday night. Isn't that interesting that we all come together on Sunday morning and that church or the assembly is a place where the well-to-do businessman can congregate with a poor person who can barely keep their head above water financially. That our worship assembly is a place where the divorced mother of three sits on the same pew with the elderly couple that's been married for 60 years. This is a place where the ex-con worships with the judge who sentenced him. I mean, it's amazing when you think about it that the worship assembly is a gathering of people from both ends of the spectrum and everything in between. We come together with people that we would probably never hang out with otherwise, which means if your church is a homogenized group, it's probably not functioning properly. We don't only love those who look like us, who talk like us, who think like us, who smell like us. We love all those because God loves them and we see them the same way. Here's another major reason why we owe this debt. Because I am my brother's keeper. My brother or my sister in Christ may get on my last nerve. My brother or sister in Christ may be someone that when they start coming towards me, I try to run the other way. I understand that some brothers and sisters in Christ have the spiritual gift of irritation. I got that. But at the end of the day, they are my brother or my sister. I owe them love, just as they owe me that love. In fact, that's the the most we could do, right? I started to say that's the least we could do. That's actually the most we could do. I mean, if, if God can love us in our rebellion, in our sin, 
then certainly we can love those that he loves. Certainly we can see people the way that he sees them. Remember, Jesus said that our chief identifier that testifies to our discipleship is our love for one another. But I want you to notice something else that Paul writes. Galatians 4.19, he says, My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Now what's interesting about this is that the image of the pains of childbirth goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And it is a metaphor for the sufferings of God's people as they awaited deliverance from oppression. This deliverance, of course, for us has been realized through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our spiritual deliverer. Just as Moses was a physical deliverer, he is our spiritual deliverer as he brings us out of the bondage and oppression of sin and now the freedom in Jesus. But Paul is also saying something profoundly personal here. He is saying that for the church, he has these pains of childbirth as he looks upon God's people. And he hopes and prays for their growth and maturity. He's experiencing discomfort until they reach the prize that he and others long for. Now, I don't know about you, but that raises the, the spiritual bar above anything that I've ever really experienced or practiced. I mean, I love people. I love all of you. I, I say that I have no enemies. I, I, I don't believe that I do. But this is quite different, isn't it? This takes things to a whole nother level to feel discomfort, to, to experience the pains of childbirth that you want so badly for someone to grow and mature in their faith, for someone to become a child of God that you experience discomfort. But perhaps that's the kind of love that we're supposed to have. Maybe that's the type of love that, that all of us should have for one another and for those outside of Christ. When I was uh, coaching baseball, we were in the district championship one year, and my center fielder hit a towering home run. As soon as it left the bat, I knew it was gone. As he rounded the bases, the team came out of the dugout, and they were waiting to greet him at home plate. And as he stepped on home, his team started mobbing him and patting him on the head, patting him on the back. Everybody was cheering. That gave us the lead. He walks to the dugout, and I was surprised as the umpire steps out in front of home plate and says, batter's out. And so I calmly walked out to the umpire, and I got real close to him so he could hear me. I, <laughs> I just wanted him to know what I was saying. I didn't know if he was hard of hearing, and I, just, I, I simply asked very politely for an explanation. He told me, that the batter missed first base. Therefore, the home run didn't count. It was all null and void. It was as if it never happened at all. I discussed it with him a little further. And after a while, I, I calmly turned away and thanked him and walked back to the dugout. Sarcasm, if you couldn't tell. Folks, if you miss first base, you're not going to make it home. First base is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You can touch all the other bases, but if you miss first, your run doesn't count. You don't make it home. And so I want to I leave you with a question this morning. I want to ask you, how's your love life? You know, as, 
the Christians that gather here at Oldham Lane, I, I feel really good about our love life here. We've got a lot of people here at Oldham Lane that got a really high batting average when it comes to love. We've got some folks here at Oldham Lane that are knocking it out of the park when it comes to the, the issue of love. We can always do better, right? We can always seek to, to raise that average, but we're doing a good job. I want to encourage you to continue swinging for the fences. And I want to give you a little homework, okay? What I want you to do for this week is I want you to pick out two people. One who is a member here at Oldham Lane, or maybe a visitor, and one outside of these walls. You know, we, we jokingly say, well, I, I sit on this side of the auditorium, and you sit over there. I'm on the north side congregation, and you're on the south side, and that's funny, ha-ha, but it's really sad, isn't it? I mean, it is. It's sad that we don't know each other better than we do. We just kind of clan together, and that's okay. You know, some people say, well, you know, that, that's a cliquish group. And you're only cliquish if you're purposely excluding people. It's not wrong to just congregate with, with people of the same age and, you know, the same interest and all that. But I want to encourage you to step out of your comfort zone a little bit. Get out of your hula hoop and go out and meet somebody in our congregation and show them love this week. How do you do that? Well, buy them a cup of coffee. Take them to lunch. Meet them for lunch somewhere. Send them a card. Give them a call. Find some way to show them love this week so that you can get to know them a little better. And the person outside of these walls is somebody that you know in your mind needs to be at church. There's somebody that needs God. They need Jesus in their life. Maybe they have some sort of semblance of faith, but you know that they need to go a little bit further. And so what you're going to do is you're going to reach out to them this week. And again, you're going to buy them coffee. You're going to go take them to lunch. You're going to send them a card or give them a call. You're going to invite them to church, whatever it is, to show them love. So you've got two people. There's a couple of rules here, though, okay? Number one, I'm exempt. You can't call the preacher and say, hey, I want to take you to lunch. That's too easy, okay? Although we can do that another week, not this week. The second rule is... Make it be someone you're not real familiar with, okay? I mean, it's easy to go to people that we already know. It's easy to call them up and say, hey, let's go out. And, and truth is, y'all go out every week. Step out of your comfort zone a little bit and seek to find somebody within this church and outside of this church that you want to show love to. And what we're going to do is about middle of the week, Wednesday or Thursday, we're going to create a post on social media, on Facebook, and I want you to share your love stories. Not in a bragging way. This is not so that you can puff yourself up. This is simply to show the world around us what Oldham Lane is doing to perpetuate this love. To show this perpetual debt and to show that, that we truly love those around us. Now, the idea, of course, is we're improving our love life. So I'll leave you with a question again. How's your love life? And, and hopefully, prayerfully, you will seek to improve it this week. Okay? Now, one more thing as we close. Every week we, we offer an invitation to folks, for anyone who may be struggling, for anyone who may be uh, dealing with difficulties in their life, for anyone who may be contemplating what it means to be a child of God and perhaps they want to study the Bible with someone, 
Maybe they've been contemplating that decision and they're ready to take the next step and, and, and be baptized for the remission of their sins. We talk about this all the time, and I'm afraid that a lot of times it just becomes an attachment at the end of the sermon. We want you to know that this is a loving congregation that wants to show that love in any way that we can. If you're hurting this morning, if you're struggling, if you need the prayers and support of this church family, if you need to get right with God, we're here for you because we love you. And we want to perpetuate that love in any way that we can. So, if you have a need this morning, Clinton's going to get up and sing a song. And if we can help you, feel free to come forward as we stand and as we sing.